This audio is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on SiriusXM. From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Your Money on Business Radio. Hello and welcome. You're listening to Your Money, Sirius XM's Channel 132, Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. And Ken Smith is a professor at the Wharton campus in Philadelphia. Remember, we are live every Tuesdays from 5 to 6 p.m. Eastern. That's 2 to 3 p.m. for those of you on the West Coast. And the purpose of the show is simply to help you make better decisions with your money. So you know the drill. Now's the time to give me a call here at 1-844-WHARTON. That's one 844 uh, 942-7866. It's uh, it, Wharton spelled like the school, W-H-A-R-T-O-N. And you can also connect with me online by going to my website, uh, kentonmoney.com. Uh, with that, let me introduce my next guest, Neela Hamel, um, who is a partner with Abacus Wealth a, a Partners and like all other advisors on this show, fee only. Remember, that's what we always want to remember, only Fee only. She's also based in Santa Monica, California. Welcome to the show, Neela. Hi, Ken. Thanks for having me. And uh, just tell us a little about your firm. I know Abacus. I've had them on uh, some people uh, there on the shows uh, in the past. But just remind us a little bit about your firm. If you have a typical client, what's your she like? So my personal client uh, target is essentially breadwinning women or what I call female decision makers. So uh, the main person who's making the decisions in uh, in the financial relationship. So we've got C-level um, executives uh, and young inheritors and pretty much everything in between. As a firm, we help everybody, though. Yeah, yeah. And again, uh, speak with Neela Hamal, who's a partner at Abacus Wealth Partners. Uh, like all our advisors on the show, fee only now's a great time to give us a call. We'll answer your questions here at one eight four four Wharton. That's one eight four four nine four two seven eight six six. And let me go to Ron calling from Pennsylvania. How can I help you, Ron? Uh, Ken, I'm uh, going to be buying a townhouse uh, or make settlement in a townhouse in the next couple months. Yep. And I'm I'm looking at mortgages, and it's been a long time since I've been uh, getting a mortgage. Yeah. And I'm getting a mortgage now because of how low the rates are. Yeah. But I'm a little bit confused with the loan origination fees. Yeah. Because they quote like 3.5%, and then they still want two points for the loan origination fee. And I thought the loan rates are about three and a half without the loan origination. And where are you looking? Uh, are you looking at just kind of local banks, or are you also going online and looking at kind of LendingTree.com and other places like that? Yeah, they have Rocket Mortgage, LendingTree.com, and those online Yeah, mortgages. yeah. And you typically, get, you know, if you can get zero points with a higher rate, but... Um, so uh, what is your uh, kind of question? You think these <laughs> rates are too high with those points? Is that the, is that the issue? Yeah. I, you know, if, if everybody's quoting three and a half for a 30-year loan, yeah. um, is the loan rich, are they trying to get more money by doing loan origination fees? And are there places that won't do loan origination fees and still give you three and a half percent? 
Yeah, well, I mean, it's it's a market rate environment. So these these rates are, are constantly changing based on uh, various factors, including the ten year uh, Treasury uh, yield. And you know, the the logic behind points is that there is some you know uh, fixed costs in terms of their their uh, underwriting the loan, and so that they want to, especially given how much people prepay their mortgages. Um, by turning it over, they want to kind of recover those fixed costs. Uh, uh, but uh, Neela, any advice for Ron to you know how we can maybe uh, try to avoid kind of some of the initial points? I mean, there are some of the lenders out there higher APR, but you know uh, if you're points. But any any quick thoughts there? I think the only thing to note is that not all upfront origination fees are bad uh, yeah. because they're effectively you're able to buy down the loan. Right. And so if you think about how long you're going to actually be in that property, sometimes paying a little bit on the front end saves you a lot over the term of the loan. Yeah. So make sure you're combining both factors and see how long you're actually going to be in that property because then you can identify the sweet spot and see if paying any origination fees makes sense so that you can buy down the loan. Yeah, and that's a great point. In particular, Ron, if you're planning on not um, prepaying uh, your 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 loan, that is, you know, rolling it over, uh, something like that, um, you think rates aren't going to go much lower than the, what they are now. Of course, it's, it's you know, it's impossible to know, um, but nonetheless, if you think rates are pretty low, uh, it's unlikely you're going to be prepaying if they went down to 3% or something like that. Uh, it's, it's better to just pay the points now and... Uh, uh, and what you're really revealing by paying the points is, is telling the bank your your prepay risk is pretty low because you know they're uh, they don't just face default risk they face prepay risk because as rates go down a lot of people re roll uh, refinance at that point and so uh, then that's a big you know risk to them and that's why they they want to recover their fixed cost of origination rocket mortgage is now the biggest mortgage provider not by volume but by number of transactions and uh, you know that yes they they do have uh, a lot of you know uh, 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 electronics and you know software behind us, not human touch like in the old days. But still, there are still transaction costs there um, that they want to they want to try to recover. But the, your best bet, honestly, it's a very competitive market. You know, look at lots of different sources, not just local sources, but look at you know places like Lending Tree and others, uh, in, in order to try to get competitive rates. And if that's the market rate, is three and a half with two points, and you're not going to do much better than that. And if that, I mean, you could wait and gamble and hope the rates come down. Um, but then that that really is is, is a gamble that you're taking. So uh, thanks so much for uh, calling, Ron. Really appreciate it. And again, speaking with Neela Hummel, who's a partner at Abacus Wealth Partners. Uh, uh, like all advisors on the show, feeling, give me a call. I'd love to answer your question here at one eight four four Wharton. That's one eight four four nine four two seven eight six six. Let me go to Patrick calling from Rhode Island. How can I help you, Patrick? Hi, Professor. Hi, Mila. I have uh, three children. One uh, will be going into college or university in four years, and I would like to know what I should be doing now in preparation for that because I'm not very educated on the topic, but I started to look at the Internet and, and find out more about what might be available to my daughter as far as financial assistance, and I'm concerned that my assets and my pay or my family's assets and uh, my wife and I's my pay uh, will be a little bit too high to end up with uh, getting any kind of financial assistance. And I guess that's a good problem to have in some respects, but I'd like your input. 
Yeah. And so have you set up a 529 at this point for her? We do have one set up for her, yes. Okay. And uh, I was trying to do a quick look up to see if it offers a tax deduction. I think it does off its state income tax. Uh, and, of course, you get the federal uh, benefit of that as well. So it's really trying to how I uh, think about optimizing the FAFSA, you know, application. Uh, and yes, as parents, you, you know, the 529 assets aren't counted nearly as much, but your other assets and income. It's it's amazing this business I am as a professor. The 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 information that we have in our customers, it's just crazy. I mean, imagine walking into Lowe's and they ask you, you know, how rich you are, how much, you know, in order to figure out how the price, you know, the snowblower and, you know, hey, can you kind of look at your assets? I mean, it, it's it's incredible. And we do it with a straight face, making it seem like we're doing you a favor uh, by doing this. It's just, it's just price discrimination, my friend. But in any case, uh, yeah, so let's talk about uh, what you can be doing. As you know, the show, I love the the one. You know, I talk about the one third rule. It's great if you can get one third uh, money, financial aid, scholarships, things like that. One third, you know, have have your kid borrow. I love having some skin in the game. One third, you know, the parents, you know, helping out if they, if that's what they really uh, want to do. Um, but what, what is really important here is uh, even if you, uh, the FAFSA, it, it, I mean, you could do tricks like transfer assets to the, your your parents, her grandparents, and stuff like that. Wait too tricky and let's not worry about that i mean i think it's you know what you want to do though is you know give some thought to all all the other resources that do do exist and also put in your retirement first so so neela talk about that i mean that is a a a big concern that you know people feel really guilty they have to you know it's their kids you know they're at home you know they have to put them through college but as a financial advisor you really try to prioritize here and where does kids kind of you know fall in, in in the list there it's so hard you know we use the analogy that i'm sure so many people have heard that you've got to put your on your own gas mask on first yeah. and so we want to make sure that you're taking care of you and your family's first needs right making sure that you're saving for retirement for an emergency for kind of yeah. those core issues and then paying for education comes after that it's something as parents i have two boys we would love to be able to pay so much for our kids and it just might not be possible so we want to help with what we can but i'm also a huge fan of having some skin in the game Um, and also putting the onus on the kids to do some of the legwork in terms of finding scholarships there are a lot of scholarships out there Um, most people tend to go for the really big scholarships and there are a lot of much smaller scholarships that don't get applications. And so that's, an, uh, I think, a low-hanging fruit that often gets missed is finding some of the, you know, one, $2,000 scholarships and cobbling those together because mm-hmm. those can really offset some of the costs. Yeah, my wife uh, paid for her Stanford education, although she comes from a poor background, just by cobbling together scholarships, including from the NFL Players Association, Walmart, and, you know, lots of other uh, groups out there. People love to give away money for this stuff. <laughs> and so, yeah, uh, don't get me, don't make me wrong, places like Penn price that in. But nonetheless, uh, people love to give away <laughs> money for this stuff. And so, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Th- there's so many different opportunities out there. And you don't necessarily have to be poor to do it. Often it's, you know, an application and you write something in, you know, my wife's case, I think something in Spanish. You got something from uh, Spanish and Portuguese uh, lang- uh, language teaching uh, foundation, something like that. I mean, she literally had dozens of these things. Uh, they're they're out there, and they're not all income tested, asset tested, and so forth. They're often based on values and things like that. So you know, give that some thought, Patrick. 
like you know start you know having your 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 kid you know as, as scrounge around for some of that stuff. So this colleges also differ a lot in that it's so places like Penn and other Ivy League schools, we do not have merit based financial aid because uh, the, uh, the you know, expression around here is that like everybody's a winner, so we don't make distinctions um, if just getting in the pen makes you a winner. Uh, but we do have needs based financial aid. But a lot of colleges uh, and very good colleges also have merit based financial aid. So in fact, if she's able to get into multiple colleges, what you do is you call up these colleges and you make them bid, you know, against each other with the merit based financial aid. So that's that's another uh, route to go. But like you said, you do have you know a luxury here uh, of uh, you know having the assets and the income that makes it a little bit harder on the FAFSA application. But nonetheless, there are still other opportunities. But in terms of priorities, again, uh, just to repeat, always prioritize your emergency of fund, making sure you have three to six months worth of expenses, depending on how risky your occupation is. Have that life insurance in place. Make sure your retirement is short up, and you can always borrow for college and help her on the back end. Having skin in the game makes means that she takes a more serious major. To, uh, it's not about football games, and it's it's really about taking on something that's a, a real investment in her human capital. So thanks so much for calling, Patrick. Really appreciate it. Uh, again, uh, speaking of Neela Hummel, who's a partner at Abacus Wealth Partners, doing a great job answering her calls here. I love to answer questions here, 5 to 6 p.m. Eastern uh, on Tuesday. So grab the phone. Give me a call here right now at one eight four four Wharton. That's one eight four four nine four two seven eight six six. Let me go to Nat, calling from North Carolina. How can I help you, Nat? Hi, Professor Smithers. Thank you for taking my call. Sure. I have a general question, and I have a. I want to get your thoughts on the annuities that's in the Secure Act. What do you think about that? I hate it. <laughs> So I, 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 I am I am like one of the few academics that's been. I did a, an interview a couple of weeks ago with the NPR, and you know the Secure Act. Everybody's like, oh, so great and so forth. I mean, it's, it's passed by enormous margins, uh, and the the problem with the Secure Act is, you know, uh, the the positives about it are trivial, and they're not gonna. Uh, they really misunderstand small business owners. Small business owners are not setting up four hundred one ks because they're super costly to set up. That that hasn't been true in the, easily in the decade for small plan 401ks. Uh, they're, they're just distracted. I mean, they're trying to make their business grow and so forth. The Secure Act doesn't actually, you know, help them with with that. You know, bigger companies have HR that they kind of focus on those type of issues. It, it, the problem with the Secure Act is this is a huge win for the commission-based industry. It's going to allow variable annuities, uh, commission-based variable annuities. Variable annuities are very light on insurance and very heavy on deception uh, to, in fact, get into the 401k uh, world. I think that's a huge mistake. By the way, defer, the type of annuities that economists like myself love, these are called fixed annuities, and some of those can also have high commissions. You have to be, you know, be careful where you're getting from. But fixed annuities is true lifetime annuity, keeps paying until you die. Um, that's true insurance protection. You get a mortality credit for survival. I mean, this is the stuff that economists in uh, 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 really like. This is, this is not what we're talking about here. Fixed, what's called deferred fixed annuities, you could also already get that in 401k plans before the SECURE Act. It's these, now it's these variable commission annuities um, that are in there, and that is a huge problem uh, uh, for me. 
And so I, I just think, uh, you know, we're redefining fiduciary to no longer mean fiduciary. And so I'm not a big fan um, uh, of that. Uh, variable annuities truly are the popular annuity, but they're being sold, not not bought. But, you know, I hate to, uh, I, I'm happy if you want to disagree with me, Neela, but uh, your thoughts. 100% agree. Um, I think, you know, annuities are already very tricky products. Yeah. Um, and most people, their 401ks are their only main savings vehicle outside of their primary residence. And so making those easier to get into a vehicle that are already kind of hard to understand, um, to me, is, is very concerning as yeah. a fee-only advisor. The number of clients who come in where we're trying to get them out of terrible annuities that they've been sold and have paid exorbitant fees is really heartbreaking. So making that easier to get into people's plans, um, I think, is, is a tragedy. And yeah. it just basically says fee-only advisors need better lobbyists. Yeah, yeah. And unfortunately, it's not you know the big money is still in commission, and it's it's just, right. it's such a you know a crazy political equilibrium that we have in the United States, where you know, lots of these products are being manufactured in blue states, think New York, Massachusetts, California, and then the red state, you know, uh, guys are just kind of like they don't like regulation or anything, so you know why not? And they don't what people don't realize is that you know when the product being sold itself is information. I mean, and, and that. Information can be deceptive. Uh, competitive markets don't solve that problem. Um, it's a, a point that economists have known for a while. I mean, we think com- competition solves a lot of problems. That's true. It doesn't solve, you know, faulty information uh, when the information itself is a product. So I think this is a, a, a very big problem. But uh, you know, hate to leave you with bad news on that, but I would say that you know, uh, really resist you know, <laughs> the annuities in 401ks. But what you can do is, you know, do think about maybe a, what's called a deferred uh, life annuity, uh, uh, a deferred um, you know uh, fixed annuity, um, but only after you've really covered the basis with making sure you have a lot of money for emergency expenses and out-of-pocket medical expenses. So thanks so much for calling, Annette. Really appreciate it. And again. I uh, speaking with uh, Neela Hummel is a partner at Abacus Wealth Partners. And uh, give me a call. Love to answer your questions. Doing a great job answering your questions uh, with me here at 1844 That's 1844 Let me go to Joseph. Call him from South Dakota. How can oh, I help you, Joseph? I appreciate you taking my sure call. Sure thing. I'm getting ready to retire, and I'm kind of gathering everything up into one pile under. Uh, one uh, management team. Yeah. And I was wondering, what's the difference between uh, having a manager take care of it, keep it in mutual funds, or have it under robo management? Yeah. Or having it in the IR uh, index fund? Yeah. Like a Vanguard SP 500. Yeah, and you do keep in mind that good fee-only advisor would be using uh, uh, index funds. So, you know, I, I think a broader question here, and people know I'm, uh, you know, my, my firm that I created and sold in 2012 was uh, largely regarded by the Wall Street Journal and others as the first was called hybrid robo-advisor, where we actually used a lot of technology. We always had financial advisors, uh, you know, delivering and also able to modify plans and so forth. Uh, uh, but I have Pan, you know, 
pure robo-advisors on this show often very misleading claims about tax loss harvesting, benefits from financial advice that actually apply, apply to human advisors and not to robo and, and so forth. But, you know, Neela, as someone's approaching retirement, that really is the time. And so much of the robo-advice, you know, it's also focused on the accumulation phase. And it's often very tax inefficient at the decumulation you know, spending phase. This really is the time, you know, to be sitting, uh, sitting down with a, I mean, it's ideally better to do it even earlier, but sit down with a financial advisor and go through all the stuff that needs to be done. Because there's so many things that, that to be thinking about. I mean, what's your pitch? I mean, how, what, what would you say to Joseph or why, uh, you know, he should be giving you or another fuel advisor a call? Yeah, well, I mean, at first I would say congratulations, Joseph. That's a that's a big accomplishment. Uh, and the next piece is I would say it really depends on what you are hoping for for the next several decades. That really you're looking at different levels of service and different levels of involvement. And so if if you're sitting across from me, I'm trying to understand what do you want? What do you want the next several decades to look like? Because then we can actually craft a plan together, figure out how you're going to be taking money out, right? For the first time in your life, you're going to be having money coming from your savings versus going the other way. And so figuring out a plan that makes sense, both from a tax standpoint and from an affordability standpoint, you know, how much can you really be taking from these accounts? What is your overall strategy? So I do think it's a good idea, even if you're not having somebody on a long-term basis to sit down with a fee-only advisor put together a strategy that either you're going to execute or they're going to execute. So you at least have some sort of a game plan going forward. Yeah. And I think what's what's really important here, Joseph, is that you don't pay for investments. I mean, investments should be boring and they, they, they really should be in kind of very kind of low cost passive index, uh, broadly diversified funds. And it's really just an issue about how much risk is appropriate for your goals and, um, you know, risk capacity, things like that. Um, uh, it, it, it's, it's saying what you really should be pay, paying for for a financial advisor is a plan. And in particular, figuring out there's so many tricky things like when you should be claiming, just because you retire doesn't mean you should be claiming Social Security at that age. Um, you can claim Social Security at a different age, and that often means big money, uh, especially if you're retiring before your normal retirement age. But often even delaying your claiming to age 70 often makes a, a lot of sense. It can add up to big money uh, by, by delaying that. Uh, Making sure that you have your wills and estates, and you know those hard conversations with you know medical directives that no one really wants to have and think about. Financial advisor is often playing that role of you know forcing you and their spouse to have that really uncomfortable conversation that you really need to have, and then really thinking about through those goals. I mean, people dramatically underestimate out-of-pocket medical expenses, for example, in retirement. A good fee only advisor is going to be looking at. So it's really a comprehensive approach that you're getting from. An advisor. So if an advisor is really talking about their first step with you is talking about your investments, that really is, you know, probably a conflicted advisor really just trying to make a quick score on some commission. The first step should be trying to figure out you, how you think about money, having that kind of, having you and your spouse there, having, uh, tr- trying to figure out um, your what your goals are and what you're trying to achieve. That's worth paying for. The other stuff, uh, not so much worth paying for. And like, as, as Neela 
pointed out, I mean, a fee-only advisor, they can make money in different ways. They could actually make money never in a commission-based way where they get product, you know, commission kickbacks. Uh, they are very hidden, and, they, you know, the commission industry says they disclose it. Of course, if you understood the dis- those disclosures, you're intelligent enough to understand the disclosures, you probably don't need a financial advisor. Uh, that the huge irony there. But nonetheless, uh, fee-only advisors, they can take assets under management and make a certain percentage, very clear what they're making, or they could just be paid on a project basis, as Neil has pointed out, and you pay them for a short period, get your plan in order, set up your Vanguard account or wherever you want to have that account, and maybe check in with them every year or two, something like that. So there's a lot of different ways to do it, but the key is to have that conversation and make sure it is member, not fee-based. <laughs> it's only fee-only is what you want to re- uh, memorize. Uh, fee-based often means some of those people just misuse words and they actually mean fee-only, but a lot of times fee-based also means conflicted commission-based where they charge you a fee and they uh, they hit you with commissions on the back end. So good luck with that, Joseph. Congratulations. South Dakota, man. I'd love to go there someday. I've not been to South Dakota. Wyoming, Montana, South Dakota is really one of, one of the states I want to hit. I'm not sure what the snow situation is there right now, but I'd, I'd love to go at some point. So thanks so much for calling, Joseph. really appreciate it. And again, speaking with uh, Neela Hummel, uh, partner, a certified financial planner with Advocates Wealth Partners. In a little warmer place in South Dakota right now, uh, Santa Monica, California. Uh, give us a call. We'll answer questions here at one eight four four Wharton. That's one eight four four nine four two seven eight six six. Let me go to Dan. Also calling in the colder state, Minnesota. How can we help you, Dan? Hi, Kent. Thanks for taking my call. Sure. My wife and I are expecting our first kid in May, and I'm Good. wanting to get us a. Uh, Life insurance policy, yeah. and I'm having a hard time figuring out exactly how much I should be taking out for each of us. Yeah, and uh, so t- tell me a little bit more about yourself. You know, how old are you? Um, and uh, it, 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 you're obviously you want to get your kid maybe up through college or something would happen. Also, tell me about your spouse, what your spouse is doing, what your household income is. You know, give give me some more facts about uh, you both. Yeah, absolutely. So I'm 35, and I bring home about. $75,000 a year. Yep. My wife, she's 28, brings in about 45000 a year. Mm-hmm. Isn't sure exactly what she's going to do once she gives birth. We're yep, gonna, that was my next question. See how she's feeling. Yeah. Um, we have about 20000 in cash, about 150 in our retirements and Roth IRAs. Uh, no debt other than our mortgage, which is at one hundred and twenty-two right now. Oh, good. Yeah, I mean that's that's a, a good situation, and, and certainly uh, that is one of the big questions. Is like how much should you be saving up, you know, for you know not just uh, buying life insurance, but you know what's going to happen uh, when your, your wife stops working. And by the way, a lot of times people make a mistake and they just think about covering. Like if your wife uh, does not continue to work, you, you might think, "Well, I just need life insurance to kind of cover my income." We often don't think income is the right measure anyway. It's really about expenses and so forth. But in fact, you often have to think about your spouse as well because something happened to her. I mean, you would have to pay somebody to take care of your kid. So you really want to be thinking about. Um, you know all all of that, Dan. Here's how I break it down. Uh, you're basically gonna try to get your your, your child through. 
through uh, maybe up through college in something like that. And so the way that you want to structure this is, first of all, definitely think about term policies, not whole life or permanent insurance. Those policies actually make more sense if you, for example, had a special needs kid who would be dependent on you for the rest of their own uh, natural life. Uh, For most people, it's term uh, insurance and probably something to like a 20-year policy. And do be thinking about, you know, how much would it uh, really cost? Uh, not it's just about income replacement, about expenses and how much uh, that policy would need to have to cover your uh, expenses, including uh, is not just thinking about your own um, uh, household expenses, but also if your wife is stopping the work, um, there's some value of childcare there as well. So you probably want to buy a policy for around 20 years. And if you guys are good savers, then you can actually do the following. You can buy one policy um, that is maybe call it a million dollar policy, something like that, uh, uh, for for ten years, or maybe let's even go more modest. Let's just call it a five hundred thousand uh, dollar term policy, which would not be that expensive, by the way, uh, given your age, uh, for say ten years, and then you can buy a twenty year policy at the same time uh, from the same company, say for another five hundred thousand dollars. And so what you're doing there is this is sometimes called a barbell approach is that the first policy, you know, kicks off at, you know, after 10 years. But you've actually, if you're good savers, you've actually saved some money um, in the meantime, build up some nest egg there so that if something does happen to you um, after, and, and, you know, after you're 10, you still have that other policy for $500,000 that, uh, that's around for 20 years. And you also have um, that nest egg of saving uh, accumulated by that point. And you may say, well, why don't you just, if you're getting one policy for 10 years for $500,000, another policy for 20 years for $500,000, both today from the same insurance company, why would you not just get one policy for 20 years for a million dollars? And in fact, that the barbell I just told you about will actually be cheaper than a $1 million policy for 20 years. And so your insurance needs are going to decline over time if you guys are good savers um, and uh, you're able to kind of uh, take, take advantage uh, of that. So again, think about a term. Uh, if, uh, what you should be prioritizing is life insurance. Think about your emergency account. Uh, thinking through is there are other things that you have to do in the house, the home improvements for a child. But then for the life insurance policy, I think you're probably, I'm ballparking it here, um, try to do what you can afford, maybe $500,000 for 10 years, $500,000 for 20 years. But if that is still too expensive, although at your age, probably not. Do think about, you know, maybe $250,000 for each one of those uh, uh, segments. Think about also um, what's called joint uh, policy that is something that it could uh, cover if either one of you died, uh, you might have to buy separate policies in that case, uh, but you, in which case maybe yours is bigger than your, your wife's, but your wife's is the replace for childcare. But do think about this barbell uh, strategy. It's usually going to be better for you, uh, if, especially if you're a good saver uh, over time. So uh, good luck with that, and don't, don't forget the spouse here and making sure that uh, you're insured for that, even if she decides to stay at home. So thanks so much, Colin and Dan. And again, 
again, speaking with Neela Hummel, who uh, partner of Happy Guest Wealth Partners. Again, give us a call. Love to answer your questions here at 1844 Wharton. That's 1844-942-7866. Let me go to Randy calling from Massachusetts. How can we help you, Randy? Hi. I have a similar question to the last caller in yep. that it's life insurance, but we were recently uh, asked by someone we will inherit um, their whatever is left in in their IRA in their estate, and they their financial planner suggested cashing out of it to buy a life insurance mm. policy, um, and then as a way to for us not to have to take the required minimum distributions for those tier, uh, ten years and liquidate it. So when they at, when she asked us that, we just said, "Hmm, I call don't know. It doesn't sound." <laughs> I, well, actually, I did say I, I have to call I have to call Kent because this definitely sounds like a Kent question yeah. of my um, knowledge. So yeah, what does that, yeah, that yeah, no, that's a, that that does make sense. So Neil explained that. I mean, obviously, the stretch RA has been uh, uh, changed with the Secure Act, but so let's just talk about the you know what it is today. The ten years, um, the required minimum distribution, and you like the idea of trying to. Uh, essentially change a lot of this into a life insurance policy. Yeah, so generally the benefit of any kind of an IRA is the ability to stretch out distributions as long as you can. And it's not that you necessarily need the money, it's that you stretch out the distribution so you don't have to pay taxes until you take out those distributions. So what Kent was alluding to about the SECURE Act is we used to be able to take those distributions out over your lifetime. Uh, Now you are limited to 10 years, which basically means you're going to have a taxable event over the next 10 years of that amount, right? Uh, So you know, what piece of that account. So the, the, where I think you're very right to be asking this question is when you cash out an inherited day, you're essentially front loading that entire taxable event in here. Um, that in itself might make you just pay more taxes over the long run because we have a progressive tax system, the yeah. more taxes you pay. Uh, and also, you know, you may have other income that further pushes you into a higher tax bracket. bracket. Um, so I am not such a fan of that idea. I would still defer that as, you know, as long as you can, which in this case is only 10 years, because that's at least 10 years of tax deferral. And you can also control it a little bit to maybe taking out more in a year where your income is lower and thus pay less taxes. Yeah, and that's I think that's key. You should only buy insurance if you really need life insurance, and typically that is not going to be the form of a permanent policy. That's going to be the form of a term policy. Permanent policies, again, there are use cases for that. You know, if you have a child who is, you know, a special needs child who's dependent on you for the rest of their natural life, there are definitely cases where it does make sense. Uh, But for most part, it does not make uh, sense. But what you can do, um, and this would not be the right idea, by the way, is under the SECURE Act, you can actually wait till you're done and, you know, defer realizations all the way to the end. The problem there is that, as uh, uh, Neela pointed out, we have a progressive tax system, that would push you into a higher marginal tax rate. What I would be doing 
is using those distributions in a, a very strategic way. Do think about, you know, maybe this year is a little bit lower than in the past. Maybe I don't have to, the secondary earner doesn't have to work a job this year, something like that. And use those kind of off years to increase your distributions. And then eventually uh, that is going to uh, uh, be kind of a, a way of uh, strategizing uh, uh, for that. But, I mean, uh, the, the, the idea is that there's no, there's no secret sauce for, you know, avoiding uh, the realizations here. And the government definitely wants their money. Uh, and so uh, that was the, what's called the pay for of the SECURE Act, uh, how it paid for the other provisions, was uh, was uh, reducing the stretch IRA to just 10, 10 years. So thanks so much, Colin. Let me try to squeeze another one in with Carl, North Carolina. How can I help you, Carl? Hey, how are you guys doing? Good. Going got a couple of minutes hey. left, so how can I help you? Okay, so it's real quick. So my mom had a gentleman walk up to her front door a couple months ago Uh-oh. didn't tell me about it till recently yeah and uh unfortunately this guy was a sweet talking nice suit wearing gentleman and somehow he got about thirty thousand dollars out of her jeez um, for what uh, what is she is, what's a like an insurance product what was it so he was selling insurance initially and then once she somehow showed him her portfolio he came back the next day with another gentleman and she went to her current financial institute and pulled 30k oh. and gave it to this gentleman to invest to invest okay yeah it's so my concern is yeah. now i haven't talked to him yet um i finally got his information she couldn't produce me a name of the company i did find a, a website but i'm just concerned if i do call this guy um yeah. you know how do i how do I approach it? What kind of questions did I ask to see if this is a legitimate yeah, it's company? Re- yeah, it's really concerning. It almost certainly is not. At a minimum, there's heavy commissions. This could also just be a complete scam. How old is your mom? Seventy-one. Seventy-one. You know, the first thing I'd be doing is looking in North Carolina and looking at. So there are different states have elder abuse laws, and this may actually file uh, fall underneath that. This could be just a complete scam, and actually could fall under elder uh, abuse laws. And there's the, that's criminal. So I'd be definitely looking at that. Uh, uh, but it, so your your mom doesn't even know the company. She can't produce the so name. She couldn't. Yeah, she couldn't recall. I asked for any kind of. Um, Wow. Statements that they've sent out, and she couldn't find them. She at the paid time, them not in the, cash, but in a check, something like that. Is there something that's traceable? Correct, and she actually had to pull it from her um, financial institution. But you said correct, said, well, we, correct. You mean in the form of a check, not cash? Yeah. Yes. Correct. Okay. So yes. there's something that's traceable. You should find that out. But before approaching those guys, I would actually be checking in your state. But Neil, uh, this less than a minute left. Any uh, thoughts? Yeah, I'd say, you know, uh, figuring out where the check was written. Was it written yeah. to an individual person versus an institution? Um, if they're a scam artist, it probably wasn't an individual institution, yeah. but you can always start there, too. Um, but, uh, yeah, going from there and and Adult Protective Services Association and looking into your state laws. Yeah, I, I would not approach them first. I would at first uh, try to figure out if there are legal issues, ramifications, uh, adult protection services, as Neil has pointed out, uh, whatever it's called in your state. Most states now have some type of uh, something there. And if there's something suspicious, you could go even with law of authorities on your side. So you, especially if it's that suspicious, you may want to uh, uh, handle it that way. Sorry to have to cut you off, important issue. Uh, but Neela, thanks so much for coming to the show. You can find out more about Neela uh, Hummel and her uh, great work at abacuswealth.com. For more guest interviews, check out our Wharton Business Radio Highlights podcast on iTunes and Google Play.